Today, as we come to God's Word, we are entering into a new portion of God's Word in Acts chapter 21. Uh, we had been in Acts chapter 20 for nearly two months, uh, but the Spirit of God is moving us along as we now move into Acts chapter 21 with Paul having his sights set on getting to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, as you remember, he referred to the fact that these, Mile- uh, these uh, Ephesian elders, he would never see them again because he was going to Jerusalem. Well, now in Acts chapter 21, he is headed there and he is uh, resolute in his conviction to go there in order that he would be able to deliver the offering to the saints who he has been collecting the offering for for nearly about a year and a half now. He's been going all over uh, Galatia, Asia Minor. He's gone over even into Europe and he's receiving the offerings from the uh, Gentile churches in order that he'd be able to deliver them to the Jewish believers who are there who are struggling with extreme famine and that they would be able to have a greater unity together as the body of Christ is called to have, uh, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for they are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, as we're going to see as we kind of get a little introduction into this passage, uh, Paul, as we're going to see, is, is uh, warned consistently on this journey. This is a journey that encompasses from Acts 21 all the way from verse 1 all the way to verse 16. And consistently on this journey, Paul is warned time and time again, don't go to Jerusalem. And we might be perplexed as to why he's constantly warned with not going to Jerusalem, and yet he still in turn ends up in Jerusalem. But what we're going to find is that Paul is a man who is firm in his spirit-filled convictions. And in that, what he's going to teach us over the next two weeks is what it means for us to be able to live out our spirit-led convictions no matter the cost and no matter the price that we may be called to pay. Uh, and, and, and in doing that, we would be able to give greater glory to God in our lives as we are living out the convictions which he has given to us by his spirit. And so if you will, please turn with me to Acts chapter 21, uh, verse 1 to verse 6, where we'll read uh, the initial portion of Paul setting off into going into Jerusalem. It's about 400 miles, and so in six verses, he's not going to get there. We're going to get there next week. Uh, but for the time being, we'll see two aspects of his conviction which we can use for our own development as well. Acts 21, verse 1 says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was about to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we have to be able to come and to consider your word. Lord, we know that there is a richness to your word that is found in every single word that is laid out before us. We know that there is no filler in your text, God, but rather every word is profitable for our instruction, our, our teaching, the training up in righteousness, that we would be equipped for every good work. And so, God, we ask that you would just impart to us by your spirit today the wisdom Uh, that you see fit to give to us as we see Paul, a man being led by your very own spirit to to conviction and conviction and just seeing through uh, what you have convicted him to do, which is to bring the offering to the Jerusalem saints. Lord, may you give us convictions as well, uh, spirit-filled convictions in order that we would be able to continually proclaim you and and name your name uh, here in the city of Hollywood and wherever else it is that you draw us to. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, the word conviction is an interesting word in that it has a variety of connotations depending on the context it is in. 
if you were to say that you were convicted of something, uh, depending again on the context, it means a very uh, different uh, set of things. If you're convicted, one might think that you were convicted of a crime. Now, one of us, we don't want to tell someone we've been convicted, and they assume that we've been convicted of a crime. Other times you might say that you're convicted in that you have been convicted by sin in which the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that needs to be removed from your lives. Other times, conviction is a firmly held belief which one comes to. And as we think about this word conviction today, that is the meaning in which we are given to uh, apply Paul's own convictions. Paul is convicted not that he has committed a crime. Paul is convicted not that he is uh, in some sort of uh, onsetting sin. Paul is convicted of a belief which he has been led to by the work of the Spirit in his heart. So you think about this conviction that Paul has, it is a firmly held belief which arises from our beliefs as Christians as we are led by the Spirit of God. As one person has put it, they say a conviction is a solid, immovable belief based on confidence in God's Word, being so thoroughly convinced of its absolute truth that we are willing to take a stand regardless of the consequences. Convictions shape not only what we believe, but also how we live and even how we die. They define who we are and provide direction with solid straight lines that do not veer off track to accommodate circumstances or temptations." As we can uh, summarize that definition, ultimately our convictions lead us to act. And no matter what happens to us and and our acting out these convictions that the Spirit has given to us, we will press onward because we know that we are doing the will of the Lord by practicing them. As we're going to find over the next two weeks, Paul is a man who was operating under a Spirit-led conviction to go to Jerusalem. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing that was going to get in his way. But before we consider that here today, we must be aware that in our application of this truth, and also in considering Paul's own application of this, we must be able to discern what a personal conviction is over and against what a spiritual conviction is. There are many times we have personal convictions which we are unwilling to budge from within a fellowship of the body of Christ, which often leads to disunity and disruption within the body of Christ in which it's unnecessary that it needs to do so. We must understand what it means to delineate between a personal conviction or a personal preference over and against a Spirit-led conviction which is found quite definitively in God's Word. As we think about this, we must be able to understand, to differentiate between our personal preference over and against which God's Word declares definitively. That is, it is fine if someone wishes to forego celebrating a holiday because they don't want to celebrate that holiday, but for them to push that conviction on another individual would be unnecessary because God's Word does not restrict us from celebrating a holiday such as Christmas. They would say it's a pagan holiday. We would say we're celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so therefore it's best in those situations that we would leave those personal preferences to ourselves. On the other hand, it would be wrong for someone to say, I prefer not to evangelize when God's Word clearly lays that out as a commission for us to do. Anyone who says, well, I, you know, that's your conviction to evangelize, I don't really have that conviction. That's wrong for an individual to say because the Spirit has commissioned every single one of us to be faithful witnesses unto the ends of the earth. Now, the application of our evangelism might be different, but all of us must be convicted to a certain extent to evangelize in the world surrounding us. 
to put it in a way in which we might relate to our own world. We know that in our society there are many people who wish to be called by their preferred pronouns, right? We are aware that individuals have a preferred pronoun, and they wish to be called by that. However, as Christians, we live under the conviction that God has either created them male or female. And so because of our conviction in that, we are not going to call them by their preferred pronoun. Rather, we would continue to call them by their God-given assignment at birth. Uh, They are either male or female. And convicted of this, we must be willing to face the consequences that might inevitably follow. This brings us to another point which we must consider on this topic of convictions. It is biblical to have convictions. It is biblical to have convictions which you have developed through the constant study and meditation upon the Word of God. And it is even more biblical to live those convictions out, to not waver from them, to not, you know, just be an individual who says, well, I'll just let that person do what they want to do and let that person do what they want to do and become very passive in the way in which we live out our Christian witness, which often happens because we are often afraid that someone might get upset at us for living out or proclaiming our Christian convictions. You see, it is biblical to have convictions and to stand firmly in what we know to be true, not being moved from it, not wavering, not balking at opposition, but rather seeing our convictions through into the end. In Acts chapter 4, if you turn with me there, we, we read of two men, the apostles, John and also Peter, who were proclaiming the message of the gospel. They were going throughout Jerusalem. This was in the early days of the uh, Pentecost revival that the Spirit of God led about. And they were going into the temple and they were healing individuals. They had healed the lame man in Acts chapter 3. And because of this, it led a large crowd to gather and they were preaching the gospel to that large crowd. Well, there were individuals who didn't want them to be preaching the gospel. And so what did they do? They arrested them and they put them before trial and they ultimately said to them, listen, you are not allowed to proclaim the message of the gospel any longer. We're not going to allow it here. This was the Sanhedrin. This was the ruling council of of, uh, Israel. And so if they said this, this was binding as a law. This was not just their suggestion. This was not just the preference of the Sanhedrin. Rather, this was a binding law which they were laying out for Peter and John to follow. They were not to speak of Jesus Christ any longer in the city of Jerusalem. Now, being that these individuals have a conviction in the Lord that they are to proclaim the message of the gospel, were they to say, okay, we won't do that any longer, it would have led them to please man and not God. They would have gone away from their spirit-led convictions and instead allowed for the, uh, uh, the worldly system to prevent them from living out their witness to the Lord. We see their response in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, to the response of the Sanhedrin when they said, if you keep speaking about him, we're going to arrest you and we're ultimately going to kill you. They say in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. These are men of conviction a spirit-led conviction, not a personal preference, but rather that which God himself had led these men to a firm belief in in order that they would be able to proclaim it unto the ends of the earth. We see an example also in the Old Testament in Joshua, Joshua 24, 15. He says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers who you served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is all right to have convictions as a believer, especially as it pertains to the Word of God. It is good for us to have 
convictions. Forget about what the world says where you just need to kumbaya with everyone and just get along with everybody. We must stand firm to our convictions lest we lose our witness in the world. As you think about the early days of the church and even going into the period of the Reformation, Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was convicted of the fact that the Catholic Church was preaching heresy in that they were saying that the gospel was salvation by faith plus works, when he came to understand that justification came on the basis of our faith and not as a result of our works, he held firm to his convictions to the point where he would not waver even unto death. And many other individuals followed suit. And because these were firm convictions, they not only were able to live in the freedom that the gospel brings to all who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they set an example for the Christian church to follow, of which we are even reaping the benefits today. You see, it is often the case that people may be unwilling to hold firm to any sort of conviction that they have because they are concerned with the consequences that might follow. And if it's my personal preference about something, I am willing to bring, uh, pull back from that or I'm not going to get into an argument or a debate with an individual about that. But if this is a Spirit-led conviction that I have or that any of us have as it relates to the Word of God, we must not waver. We must see it to the, to the end no matter the cost that might come. You see, as we will see here, one who is convicted of the Spirit of God on account of the Word of God will see this conviction through no matter the cost. We're going to look at it more in depth, but just to give you an understanding of what Paul is going to, Paul is convicted that he must go to Jerusalem, and as he goes to Jerusalem, he is going to give the offerings that he has been collected for some year and a half to the Jerusalem saints who have been dealing with extreme poverty on a result of a famine that has occurred. But what Paul is constantly told as he is making his way into Jerusalem is that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be beaten and he's going to be imprisoned. And so along the way, he's dealing with difficulties both in his own spirit and also with individuals who are constantly telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. You know this is what's going to happen to you. Just don't go. But Paul, being led in this conviction by the Spirit of God, is unwavering and he is going to make it to Jerusalem, he is going to see his conviction through no matter the cost. And so we must ask ourselves this today as well. What are my convictions? What are your convictions? What, what is it that you are convicted of as you come to the Word of God? And if you have to think about it too long, you don't have any. An individual who has a conviction knows what they believe and they are willing to see it lived out, whether in their own practice or in their communication with an unbeliever as they share the message of the gospel. You see, one is, who is convinced of a biblical truth or how the Spirit of God is leading them does not need to think any longer on whether this is a conviction or not. Rather, they know it is, and they are thereby willing to defend it when called upon to do so, and they are actively seeing it through, that they are living this out. An individual who says, I am convicted to share the message of the gospel, but never does it, is only an individual who is convicted in his words, but in their actions they are showing that they are thereby not convicted of actually evangelizing. An individual who is convicted of something sees it through. They follow through. They go and they share the message of the gospel. But an individual who is wavering in their conviction shows that they are, they are maybe convicted to a certain extent, but when the cost becomes too high, well, then they're just going to balk at that because they don't want to face the consequences that might come from sharing the message of the gospel. You see, Paul was a man of conviction. This was the right kind of conviction which leads you to act on what the Spirit of God is calling for you to do. 
And do not mistake me in this. I'm not suggesting that any of us go about this in our own strength. Many individuals have risen and fallen quite quickly because they have a spirit-filled conviction which they seek to operate or live out through their own man-centered power or wisdom or abilities. The individual who has a spirit-led conviction must live out that spirit-led conviction by faith. I don't wish to prop up Paul in this example here, but rather I wish to present to us the demonstrative proof throughout all of Scripture that the individuals who had a spirit-led conviction led them out with a boldness, not on account of how great they were, but rather because they trusted in God. You just turn to Hebrews chapter 11 to see that hall of faith where individuals are constantly living out their faith, their conviction in what God is calling for them to do, and they are bold in it to the point where you see that they are willing to give up everything to live out this spirit-led conviction that they have. One such example is Abraham. Abraham in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8, it says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You go further and you read about Moses. By faith, and this is verse 23, by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And you go further and you look at just the rapid-fire example of individuals in verse 33. It says, These individuals who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, becoming mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Women receiving their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What we're going to find with our convictions that we have by the Spirit of God is that when we are led by the Spirit of God to live out our convictions, we will soon waver if we attempt to live them out uh, by our own strength or by our own will or by our own courageousness. But if we live these out by the Spirit of God, trusting in God and what He has called for us to do, He will lead us forward in our convictions. I want to illustrate just an example that we can see this, an individual who has a spirit-led conviction, but who is unwilling, unwilling to live out that spirit-led conviction by faith. There's an example of two men who were during the time of the Reformation when Bloody Mary was on her reign of killing Christians. There was one such man who was uh, an individual who was being trained up as an uh, individual who was a, going to be a missionary to go out and spread the message of the gospel. 
And he kept telling his teachers, he kept telling his leaders, I want to be a martyr. Anyone who was sent in the mission field at that time preaching the message of the gospel and denying the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, it was a death sentence when the Catholic Church got a hold of them or Queen Mary during her, her, her reign, Bloody Mary. This was a death sentence for an individual. And this, say, this guy said, send me out. I want to live a martyr's life. I want to be a martyr. I want to die for the message of the, proclaiming the message of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so finally his teacher said, all right, I'll send you out. No sooner did he get sent out than he found himself being held on trial for treason, especially treason or actually heresy, and he was going to be burned at the stake lest he recanted his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he end up doing? He ended up recanting his faith and wagging his tail back to his leaders and showing to them that he was not yet ready to live by faith in the promise of God. He was not yet willing to stand for his convictions that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was not willing to die for what he believed in. There was yet another man who, upon being sentenced to die for his faith, said the night before to his wife, before he was going to be burned at the stake, he said, though my breakfast will be somewhat sharp, my supper will be more pleasant and sweet. Here is a man who recognized this valuable truth that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And knowing that he was going to eat breakfast and then be led into a, a stake where he was going to be burned alive for proclaiming the message of the gospel, he could say, my breakfast, it's, it's not going to taste very good, but my supper is going to be sweet. He knew, he knew that as he finished the race, he would be brought to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was one who was led by his convictions. And really, as we come to what Paul is going to teach us here in Acts chapter 21, or rather the Spirit of God will teach us through the example of Paul, is here was an individual who was led by his convictions. And you say, how do I know if I'm being led by my convictions? Well, there's just basic truths about how Paul is carrying along in his journey to Jerusalem that are going to be applicable for us in that we would be able to understand how it is that we not only can have a conviction in the Lord, but also what it means to live out that conviction as we go about doing it in our day-to-day -day life. The first thing that we see here today about convictions from the example of Paul is shown to us in verse 1 to verse 3. And it's not going to jump out at you. It's just a travel log. But as we begin to understand it, you will see it so clearly by what Paul is doing. In Acts chapter 21, verse 1, it says, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Right? Powerful, right? You, know, you see the conviction right there. You don't. But we must ask the question, why is Paul doing these things? Because really, as we see Paul doing these things, we learn a lot more by what he does than by what is said here as it's a narrative of the travel log that Paul and Luke and the rest of his traveling companions were traveling on. We learn a lot more about what Paul is doing, or why Paul is doing what he is doing in order that we could understand his conviction being lived out. You see, Paul was a man, the first point we see is that he was a man who was determined by his convictions. Anyone who has a conviction is going to see it through. They're going to take the steps to do what they are convicted to do. It's as simple as that. It's not really a profound truth, but so often it's so difficult for us to just put our feet to the road. We say, I want to go and evangelize. I have that conviction to do it, but I never do it. You know, a man who is convicted or a woman who is convicted is determined to live out his convictions. 
And so as we look to Acts chapter 21, verse 1 to 3, we see Paul just going through this travel. He's just traveling. He stopped at Kaz, then he goes to Rhodes, and then he goes over into Patara, then Phoenicia, and then he makes his way into, uh, Phoenicia was on the coastline of Israel. He makes his way and lands at Tyre, where they're going to unload the ship. And you say, well, how does this show Paul's conviction? Well, it shows Paul with a steadfast purpose to get to Jerusalem. He is taking this course to get to Jerusalem. Now, to understand how we know Paul is so convicted of getting to Jerusalem, we need to understand what Paul himself has been doing. As Paul has been traveling on his third missionary journey, Paul has been constantly saying, I need to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. I am going to go to Jerusalem. And this is over a three years period of time where he finds himself in Ephesus that he's constantly reminding the Ephesian church he needs to get to Jerusalem. Immediately following his work being complete in the Ephesian church. Now, you remember, he was at the Ephesian church and he says, I have taught you night and day with tears the full counsel of God's word. One might say, well, you know, Paul, Paul, you should probably take a break. You spent three years, night and day, teaching these individuals. You ought to take a break, go on a little vacation, you know, rest up a little bit. But Paul, being convinced of his convictions, was determined to get to Jerusalem that he could deliver this money to the Jerusalem saints. To hear it from Paul's mouth, look to Acts chapter 19, verse 21. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Going to Acts chapter 20, verse 16, we see it again. It says here, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. You go further in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. In his letters to the churches, he writes to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 15, verse 24 and 25. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. To the Corinthian church, which Pastor Richard was preaching on just a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul was going to Jerusalem. You say, why does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Why does he want to go there so bad? Is he trying to take a vacation? You know, what, what is he got some property he wants to sell there? Why does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Why is he so convicted of going to Jerusalem? Well, it's said in his letters here, and it's also said in what we've read before in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. He wants to bring the aid to the Jerusalem saints. And this is not merely just this desire that he has, but rather this is a desire that has been led, that built up in his body that the Spirit of God has been leading him to do in order that he would be able to bring aid to the saints who are suffering severe famine and persecution. Jerusalem was really the headquarters for Judaism. And so anyone, absolutely anyone, who recanted their faith in the Judaistic system,
go to church on a Sunday, they were completely removed from the society in which they lived in. They had nothing, absolutely all of their property, all of their monies, all of their resources, their jobs, their family relationships, everything was gone. And so you can imagine that this would lead to a severe persecution and thereby a severe severe, uh, 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 loss of financial resources to provide for themselves. And so Paul says, what we're going to do is we're going to go to these Gentile churches. The Gentile churches happen to be a little bit more prosperous during these days. We're going to go to the Gentile churches. We're going to collect the money from them in order that we could bring the money to the Jerusalem saints that they would be able to have some resources that would help care for them in their great time of need. You know, once the persecution dies down a little bit, then the church can get on their feet again, and we don't need to do this that often. But for now, it was necessary. They needed to get that money to Jerusalem. And this was not just merely about giving money to someone in need. This was much more than that. This was theological in its purpose. It was theological in the sense that this was an act of love that Paul was calling on the Gentile churches to live out because as it was, though Christ had torn down that dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, uh, if you look at any historical records or just if you follow along the the pattern of the Jewish history or the Gentile history, they didn't really like each other. They they hated each other. They thought one was a lesser race. You know, I'm not going to talk to the Gentiles, not going to eat with them, not even going to be by them. If they walked into a Gentile country and they walked into into, uh, Israel, they would kick the dust off of their feet so no Gentile dust would enter into Israel. The same way it went vice versa. They hated each other. But you see, Christ, when Christ saved both Jew and Gentile alike, that dividing wall of hostility had been torn down. There was nothing separating them. They were one in Christ Jesus. This was positionally speaking. Practically speaking, however, they had not yet been willing to step over that wall that had been torn down to fellowship with one another. And so Paul, being led by the Spirit of God, has this this idea, this thought, this theological impulse to collect the money for the Jerusalem saints from the Gentile churches in order that it would be an act of love to show their unity towards one another. You can imagine this. The the Jerusalem uh, Jewish uh, church there, they are poor. They're broke. They have nothing. The Gentile church is flourishing. Uh, Can you imagine that there's just the love and and the unity that might come from them saying, listen, this is the money that we have, but really you are one with us, and so here, take it. We want to bless you with this. Uh, The unity that this would bring to the body of Christ was so important. It was foundational. And so Paul was working towards collecting this money that he would be able to bring it to the Jerusalem saints. You see, it's so important that we do not miss this, that, that Paul was not just doing this to collect some money. He was not doing it to get prestige from these individuals. Rather, he was doing it in order to unite the body of Christ. This was a spirit-led conviction. He wished to unite the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why would he wish to do this? How do we know that this is a spirit-led conviction? Well, this is because what the Spirit has done positionally to us often needs to be lived out practically, but it is difficult to do. It's difficult to live out that unity that we have positionally as the members, equal members in the body of Christ. It's difficult to do that because we still are beset with sin and we have our own traditions or our own cultures or our own preferences that often limit our ability to fellowship with one another. And so Paul, knowing that they had been united, wanted to give them an opportunity to show that unity practically through the giving of their funds to the poor brothers at Jerusalem. You see, also, not only has the Spirit made us one positionally, but Christ in His prayer to the Father, His high priestly prayer, was that we would be one in order that the world would know that the Father had sent Jesus to be the redemption for our sins. When the church is not one, the church has a limited witness in the world. Therefore, Paul was 
dead set on getting this money to the saints that the church would be united as one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see here as we live out our own convictions, what we must understand is that often when we have a spirit-led conviction, the steps that we need to take to live it out are often going to be quite painstaking. They're not going to be easy. It's not going to be just one day, oh, yeah, I want to unite the body of Christ who's never loved each other, who hate each other, actually. I want to unite a, a church that has never had anybody from a particular group to come into that church, and I want them to love each other. Or I want a church to unite that has traditional music and another church that has contemporary music. Good luck with that one right there. You know, it's difficult to do this. You don't just set out one day and just say, I'm going to do this. It is a painstaking task that needs to be done and lived out with a thoroughness that it would be able to be accomplished. And we see this painstaking task in the fact that Paul, wanting to deliver the money to the saints, couldn't just one day say, hey, why don't you go and uh, Venmo this to the Jerusalem saints? No, he had to go all throughout Galatia, all throughout Asia Minor. Then he went to Europe, and as he went to Europe, he went back into Asia Minor, stopped off at Miletus for a couple of days, talked to the elders who were there, and now after all of that, he's got to travel some 400 more miles to bring this money to the Jerusalem saints. That is a difficult task in our day, let alone during the days of Paul when travel was not as easy as it is now in our days. He couldn't just take a plane to get there. He had 400 nautical miles to travel to be able to get to these Jerusalem saints. And so it says, when we had parted, they parted from the Ephesian elders, they set sail, and they came a straight course to cause. They go to Kos, and you say, well, why, why is Luke telling us about all these places we don't know? Well, again, this is the travel log that he has to take to get to Jerusalem. So they go to Kos. Kos from Miletus was about 40 miles. And you say, well, what would they see at Kos? You want a little history, uh, a history lesson on this. Kos was a place that had a famous medical school. It was a very well-known medical school. It couldn't stop off there. You know, Luke being a doctor, Luke loved medical. You know, Luke probably said, hey, Paul, can we take a stop here to, you know, go look, check out this medical school so I can learn a little bit more? Paul said, no, we got to get to Jerusalem. And so they go the next day. Day, they stop at Cause. The next day they head to Rhodes. Rhodes is a place which is familiar, if you're familiar with any of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Rhodes had the Colossus of Rhodes. It was a 105-foot statue that towered above the harbor and which was dedicated to the sun god Helios there. And so they would have passed that. No tourism stops there. You've got to keep on moving. They go past uh, uh, Rhodes and they get to Patara. Patara was about another 90 miles from, uh, from Rhodes where they would stop off in what was the western city of Lycia. Now in this, they were going on uh, kind of hugging the coastline. If you had a map, you could see it. They're hugging the coastline there. But when they get to Patara, they want to make a long journey where they don't have to keep stopping in all of these stops. Having a smaller vessel, you got to hug the coastline because you can't really deal with the open waters. So when they get to Patara, they find a ship, it's in verse 2, that is crossing over to Phoenicia. And when they went aboard and set sail, they come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. They sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So they're leaving, they're leaving, um, uh, they're leaving uh, Phoenicia, and they're setting sail. And so about halfway from Phoenicia to the, uh, yeah, Phoenicia to, actually, I'm getting confused here. Halfway from Patara to Phoenicia is about 200 miles. And so on the left side, they see the coast of, uh, of uh, Cyprus. They pass that. This is where they planted the first churches they went to. They pass that, and they get over into Phoenicia, which is the coastline of Israel, and they settle off in Tyre, and they finally make it to a place where they have to then take another 100-mile journey down the coast to get to Jerusalem. And you say, why am I saying all of this to us? 
Do we need a historical lesson on the geography of the ancient world? No, we don't really need that. But what we do learn from this quite definitively is that it is a difficult, difficult, difficult task for Paul to be able to live this out. If we wish to do anything that we have been convicted by the Spirit of God to do, it is not going to be an easy task for us to do. It may not have us traveling some 400 nautical miles, but it is going to take planning, foresight. It's going to take a, a, a lot of discernment in our own hearts to see, is this actually from the Spirit of God? It is going to take big picture thinking, faith and faithfulness to live out what God is calling for us to do. It is important that we understand that in these convictions that we have, we must not go about them lightly, but rather recognize that when we live these out, it is going to be quite taxing on our lives, which is going to want to cause for us to you know, hold up a little bit or let up a little bit. But in doing that, we limit our witness in the world and we must continue to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to care for the body of Christ wherever we go. See, Paul was a busy man, and I mentioned this. Paul had spent three years Three years, day and night, teaching the believers at Ephesus. And now he could, one, say, I'm going to take a little break. The island of Rhodes actually was called the Island of Roses, a very beautiful place. Paul could have said, hey, let's stop off at Rhodes for a little bit. Going to take a three-month vacation, a little sabbatical here for me. Going to sip on some stuff and just, you know, relax a little bit, take it easy a little bit. But no, Paul was convicted of the fact that he needed to get to Jerusalem. And on top of him not taking a break, the travel during those days would have been horrendous. I mentioned they initially started off in a smaller vessel. They hugged the coastline there. But then when they went from Patara over into Phoenicia, they get on a large ship. It's a, it's a, a merchantman ship. It had cargo on it. And during those times, they would have been on the open sea. If you've ever been on a boat in the open sea, you know that travel is not all that good often. And in those days, the boats were certainly not as secure as the boats that we have in our day. This would have been a tremendous difficulty for Paul. And Paul could have said, well, you know, I... Don't really think I'm going to get the money to the Jerusalem saints because I just can't afford this travel that's going to be happening on me. It's going to be very taxing. I can't do it. You know, how bad was the travel for Paul as he was traveling by ship? You might wonder that. You know, what did it look like for Paul as he was traveling on the ocean to go into uh, Jerusalem as he was making his way from uh, Eastern Europe? What, what, what did he do? How did he get there? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us some of his sufferings that he faced. And he mentioned some of his, his travel at sea. And we can get an idea of what he went through on this journey as he was making it from uh, Miletus all the way into Jerusalem. It says, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. And we can imagine, not, not taking all of this, but we can imagine that at very, the very least, Paul was in cold and exposure as he was traveling on the open sea, making his way to bring the money to the Jerusalem saints. How easy it would have been for him to just say, well, I'll, I'll send a courier to do this. You know, I got some other stuff I got to do. I'll let that guy deal with the hardships of this. No, he couldn't do that. It was too impersonal. It would not have the intended effect that he had been praying for and that he had been led by the Spirit of God to bring about. And so therefore, he needed to go along. He needed to follow through with his conviction to go to Jerusalem. And as he had this conviction, he took the steps to ensure that he was going to be able to make it there. You see, when we are determined to live by our convictions, one thing that we must do, so simple, but we must do it, we must ensure that we are going to live these out. 
We must ensure that we are dedicated to the task that is going to be in front of us when we go to live this out. We must not just say, well, you know, I, I'm going to you know, go a little bit at this. It gets a little hard. I'm going to turn back from this. It's not the way that we are to live the Christian life. Rather, we live the Christian life with boldness because there is no turning back when we set out to live out the Spirit-led convictions that He has given to us. In this, we must understand this as well. We must ensure that when we have a conviction from the Lord, that it is not merely a selfish pursuit or that we have given a lack of diligent thought about it and thereby we uh, turn away when things get too tough for us. We must be careful in this because many have erred because they took what they thought was to be a conviction from the Lord, which was not, and in turn it disrupted and hurt many lives in the process. There was a time when the Salvation Army was getting its start in the uh, country of England, and there was an Earl of Shaftesbury. He was one of the leading religious figures in that town, and he said, after much study, I am convinced the Salvation Army is the Antichrist. He was convinced of this, and so he announced it to everyone when he didn't just take into account the fact that maybe these individuals were wishing to reach people with the message of the gospel in an untraditional way, unlike what the Church of England would have been doing. The individuals who started the Salvation Army, William and Catherine Booth, they were attempting to do was to kind of abandon the traditional concept of a church pulpit to take God's Word directly to the people. That's not antichrist. That is for Christ. And here this man, he's convinced of his convictions, and he ends up really disrupting the ministry of these individuals, leading many people away from doing something that was certainly godly to do. Another example is by a young man by the name of William Carey, one of the greatest missionaries of yesteryear. This man, when he said he was setting out to go into international missions, a Baptist minister stood up and said, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. When God wishes to convert the heathen, he will do so without mine or your help. Here was this Baptist minister who had a conviction that God was only going to win the heathens without his or anyone else's help. It was going to be God alone who was going to convert the heathens. But he did not realize that God is often using us as the means to the end where he will convert those who are his elect. Here was a man who often was erring in his own personal preference, which in turn could have led to uh, stopping one of the great missionary movements, which we are again reaping the benefits of in our day. Still also there are those who have a conviction to get into ministry maybe. There's an example of this in Acts, Acts chapter 13. When Paul and Barnabas would just turn there just to give you an example here from the Scriptures. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are setting out and they're going to be on their first missionary journey. This is something that the church in Antioch had been praying about. They were praying and fasting and they were led by the Spirit of God to go out into the world to proclaim the message of the gospel. Well, Paul and Barnabas went, but there was another person who said, I'm ready to go too. I'm convicted. I want to be a part of this. This was John Mark. But when they get into a place which was a little bit difficult for them, John says, hey guys, got to go back home. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this any longer. And he leaves them. And then further in Acts chapter 14, when they're going to go back out into the mission field, or Acts 15 rather, they're going to go back into the missions field and Paul and Barnabas are going to go back. Barnabas says, hey Paul, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no, he deserted us last time. We cannot take him. This led to Paul and Barnabas splitting from serving with one another and thereby it disrupted the fellowship that individuals have. We must be ensured that these convictions are our own in order that we, or not our own, but rather the Lord's in order that we would be able to live them out. We must ensure that our convictions are not merely our preferences when embarking on living them out. And you say, Paul was such a wise man, you know, that, you know, I can't live out the conviction in the same way that Paul was living out his conviction. 
We must not covet after the ministry of Paul here. Rather, what we must do is understand that the Spirit of God is leading us each individually in our own convictions that we receive as we come to the study of God's Word. And in doing that, if we just live out these Spirit-led convictions, we will be able to live them out by the grace of God and not because we are comparing them to what someone else might have done. Don't even look at what other people are doing. Do what the Spirit is calling for you to do and God will bless it tremendously. And you say, what, what should I be convicted about? What should I be convicted about? I can't play the Spirit of God for you. The Spirit of God will convict you in what you need to do. But I can generalize areas in which we see the early church being convicted by the Spirit of God. These were three things, three things that they were convicted of. They were convicted of their need to worship, they were convicted of their need to evangelize, and they were convicted of their need to fellowship. Three things. They were convicted of these things, and so they lived them out with an utmost purpose in their lives. They would worship God, they would evangelize the lost, and they would fellowship with the body of Christ. You see, worship of God was their main conviction. In Acts chapter 19, verse 17 to verse 20, we read in, uh, in that uh, narrative there when they are finding themselves uh, coming under the conviction that their idolatrous practices were wicked. What do they do? It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. They were convicted that these things were antithetical to God. And they said, rather than just letting this conviction pass, we're going to burn them all up now. They followed through with that conviction because they were concerned with worshiping God and not having anything to do with sinful practices. Still also, the church in Acts was often constantly convinced of the fact that they needed to evangelize. Wherever they went, they just evangelized. Acts 8 tells us that. Acts 8, verse 1 to verse 4, it says... And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and, com and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were, they were so thoroughly convicted of the fact that they needed to evangelize that no matter what came their way, they were going to, wherever they were, evangelize. Paul or Saul at that point was persecuting the church, killing them for evangelizing. didn't matter to them. They were going to make the message of the gospel known. And then finally, we see that fellowship was a priority for them, and they sought to be in fellowship with the body of Christ. They were doing everything they could to be in fellowship with the body of Christ. Acts chapter 19, verse 7 to 12 says, um, uh, actually 17 to 20, rather, it says, actually, no, I'm reading again wrong. Sorry, I'm using a different Bible today and it's throwing me off a little bit, but I'm going to get there. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 7 to 12, I was right when I first said it. It says, uh, there were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue for about three, actually, no, it's again, I'm wrong. It's Acts chapter 20 is where I need to be, 7 to 12. Sorry about that. Uh, it says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room when we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. 
But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. What's happening here is a night-long fellowship. They were spending hours upon hours upon hours together as the body of Christ. Paul and them were only going to be there for a little bit of time at Troas. Didn't matter to them. They found the church. They fellowship with the church. Fellowship with the body of Christ was a priority. And church, if we could just regain these three convictions in the same way that the early church lived out their conviction or their commitment to the Lord in this, we would, like the early church, make a strong impact on our society. But as it is now, we often have so many other things drawing us away from our convictions. This conviction that we know we need to worship, we know that we need to be evangelized, and we know that we need to be in fellowship, but we are unwilling to live these out because we are easily swayed from the convictions which we know we ought to be living in. We are easily swayed away from them. And many times, not by bad things, they're just general things that we have to do in our lives. But an individual who is convicted of something, especially a spirit-led conviction, will be unswayed in their convictions. They will see it through to the end. And this is, the, again, the example of Paul in verse 4 to verse 6. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Uh, yes, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. You see, the test of one's convictions really is shown by how easily moved they are from them. It is if they say, oh, I'm going to do this, but then, you know, someone says, well, maybe you shouldn't do that now. You say, oh, yeah, I think you're probably right. That's the person who's not really convicted of something. They are going to live it out. And this is not an arrogance. This is not, you know, I'm not going to listen to anyone. This is not, I'm going to be unreasonable with individuals. This is an individual who has thought this out. They have planned this out. They are certain that the Spirit of God is leading them to do this. And so, therefore, no one is going to sway them, not even the loving counsel of friends. This is what Paul received here in Acts chapter 21, verse 4 to 6. The loving counsel of his friends saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go on to, the Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say through the Spirit, do not go to Jerusalem? Well, it goes back to what Paul always heard when he told the church he was going to Jerusalem. The Spirit said that he would suffer afflictions and imprisonments when he got to Jerusalem. That's Acts 20, verse 22 to 24. He says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. You see, Paul is going to go to Jerusalem, and it does not matter that he has this word from his brothers that there is going to be persecution as he finds himself being there. He will go on to Jerusalem. They, they hear this from the Spirit. They, they speak this. These are, these are prophets here in the church. They're prophesying, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to be persecuted there. Whereas, well, some people take it that the Spirit's saying, don't go to Jerusalem. But rather, what this is, is an inference from his brothers there to try to protect him from being persecuted and imprisoned when he gets there. You see, they are responding to the Spirit's word that Paul is going to be suffering when he gets there to Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Do not step foot in Jerusalem. But this verse, I want to talk about this for a moment. This verse has created quite a stir amongst the body of Christ, uh, especially in our day. 
there is a number of, of thoughts that come from this. The first thought is this. Does Paul sin by not listening to what the brothers tell him to not go to Jerusalem? They say, through the Spirit, do not go to Jerusalem. Does Paul sin? Is Paul disobeying a direct command from the Spirit of God? Still, there are others who form a doctrine which says that New Testament prophecy differs from Old Testament prophecy because in it, you know, it's not always right, and so it's okay if you disobey New Testament prophecy because it's often not delivered perfectly, and so Paul knew this wasn't delivered perfectly, and so he just disobeyed, and he showed that we don't have to listen to what God actually says. Is this what is happening here? Is this where Paul is saying, oh, I'm not going to listen to the Spirit. I'm going to just keep going on with my journey here. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the brothers say here. I'm just going to keep going on there. If Paul was to do that, then Paul would have sinned. These people who interpret this passage in this way interpret it under the wrong idea because they look at it just right there in verse 4 rather than looking at the context surrounding Paul's journey to Jerusalem here. You see, Paul is not rebelling against the Spirit of God. The Spirit does not tell Paul to not go to Jerusalem. That is an inference from his brothers there at Tyre who are saying, as they hear what is going to happen to him, don't go on to Jerusalem. Paul was going to go to Jerusalem. In fact, Paul said constantly the Spirit is constraining him to go to Jerusalem. This is a strong word. The Spirit is controlling him. The Spirit is moving him along to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so therefore, Paul is moving to Jerusalem, not necessarily on his own accord, but rather, as I've said, in a spirit-compelled journey. A spirit-compelled conviction is leading him there. You see, Paul, going to back to the beginning of his ministry, Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he is told through Ananias, or the, the, the Lord tells Ananias in Acts 9, verse 16, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And this has been the case for Paul's ministry. On his first missionary journey, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was flogged, and he was even stoned. On his second missionary journey, he was imprisoned, he was mocked, and he was chased. He was hunted by individuals uh, from Berea, and they hunted him into Thessalonica. Paul was hunted by individuals as he was proclaiming the message of the gospel. And it was no different on his third missionary journey. He was going to face persecution to the point that when he went to Jerusalem, that was going to be the same thing that was going to happen to him. And so individuals who say, well, they're telling Paul not to go, and, and Paul's disobeying the Spirit of God here, that's the wrong idea. It's the wrong interpretation. We must always follow what God calls for us to do. There is no distinction between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. It is the same Spirit who gives both. Therefore, God is not going to get things wrong, not even in a small sense. God is always going to speak what is true. And so for those individuals who say Paul's wrong for going because he's disobeying the spirit they are wrong what happens here is he has individuals who are trying to sway him from going to jerusalem because they are inferring from this word from the spirit that paul would suffer persecution there they're inferring that paul should not go this is their own interpretation this is a loving a loving kind counsel from his brothers who are seeking to say paul you know what's going to happen don't go to jerusalem you know paul they don't know who I am. I'll bring it to them. You know, Tyre, where they are right here in Acts 21, verse 4, about 100 miles away from Jerusalem. They're probably saying, Paul, don't go. We'll take it for you. You know, Pentecost is coming up. We're going down there anyway. We'll take it for you there. They're trying to sway Paul from going through with the conviction that the Spirit of God had given to them. They are trying to sway him off of his course, and not in the wrong way. They don't have ill motives here. They're not trying to, to move Paul away from what the Spirit of God is leading him to do, but rather they, in their love and their concern for Paul, are trying to move him away from what he needs to do, and therefore Paul says, listen, 
I love you guys. I care about you guys. I listen. I hear what you're saying to me, but I need to go to Jerusalem. We see it further in next week. We're going to look at it even in more detail in Acts chapter 21, verse uh, 10 to verse uh, 14. Uh, It says, uh, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not, go, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, they were trying to convince him otherwise, but it wasn't because they didn't want what's best for him. They thought they knew what was best for him, and they thought that he would be preserved a little longer if he didn't go, and so therefore they are calling him to not go. But Paul says, listen, you're trying to move me from my convictions. I must go. I have to go. And eventually in verse 14, we see that they say, let the will of the Lord be done. You see, an individual who is firm in his convictions will not be swayed from them. They will not be swayed from their convictions. It doesn't matter who tells them. It doesn't matter how much they try to tell them. It doesn't matter how much they cry. It doesn't matter how much they offer them. They are going to press forward in their convictions. Why? Because they know that this is what God is calling for them to do. They need not listen to anybody else. They are firm. They are steadfast. They are resolute in their convictions. And it is good that we do this because this is how God will use us for greater and and more purposeful things for his kingdom. We are not going to get anywhere if we are quickly moved from our convictions. If we go to evangelize and someone says, I don't want to hear that anymore. And you say, well, you know, I'm probably going to pack it in for the day. I'm going to come out again the next day. We are swayed from our conviction to evangelize. Just because one person said no doesn't mean the next person's going to say no. We must continue onward knowing that God will give us the boldness to be able to go further in the witness that he is calling for us to live out. You see, it, it is emphatic. It is emphatic how strongly these people are trying to keep Paul from going to Jerusalem. In Acts 21, verse 4, it says that they said, do not go on to Jerusalem. In the Greek, the literal Greek reads, do not step foot in Jerusalem. Don't even get close to Jerusalem, Paul. Don't, don't go His convictions through. And this is not him being hard to deal with either. It's not him, you know, saying, I'm not going to listen to anybody, but rather this is someone who knows their priorities and they are going to live out what God would give them to do. And someone might say to me, if everybody lived by their convictions, nothing would ever get done because everybody would be doing their own thing. That is showing, that idea shows that these people are thinking about if individuals were living by their personal convictions. If God is leading us through a spirit-led conviction, he's not going to lead his church into disorder. He's not going to lead his church to be doing 150 million different things. Rather, he's going to lead each of us to work consistently together as the body of Christ to live out the convictions that he is leading each one of us to live out. He has led me to the conviction to preach and teach his word. He's not led you to do that, has he? No. If he did, then we'd have a bunch of people up here preaching and no one would be able to know what was going on. You know, God will lead each one of us to convictions through the giftings that he has given to us and we are called to live them out. It's not going to create disunity. It's not going to create chaos. Rather, it is going to create order as the body of Christ is working as it ought to be working. You see, if we all know our convictions, we must live them out knowing that God is going to use them for his glory here as our church continues to function in them as the body of Christ. And knowing this also, 
in the fact that we don't know what's going to happen when we live by our convictions. We often fear the worst when we go out and live out our convictions. You know, if I, as I go to preach and teach, I always worry, well, am I going to say the wrong thing? Or when I forget a passage, I did. So what? You know, I forgot where the passage was. Big deal. You know, we're always worried about the, 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 the smallest things. It doesn't matter. If we live out the conviction that God is calling for us to live out, he will bless us tremendously. Paul knew what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to get imprisoned and beaten, and yet he still lived. We don't know what's going to happen, and so thereby we must step out in faith to go out and live to what God is going to call for us to do. You see, if we just immediately balk at living out our convictions because we're worried about what is going to happen, we are swayed from our convictions because of the unknown, the fear of man or the fear of the unknown, whatever it might be. We must live out our convictions by faith knowing that the Lord is going to lead us onward to live out whatever it is he's calling to do with utmost boldness. You see, I want us to understand this here. I, I don't think that we as a church, or, or Christians for, uh, in general, I don't think that we don't know what our convictions are. I think we've got a pretty good idea about what our convictions are. I think where we fail is in the boldness to live out our convictions. And the reason for this is because we fail to trust God in whatever conviction He is leading for us to live out. You see, we know our convictions. I know that I need to evangelize. Where I lack boldness is I am worried that someone might uh, re reject me in a way that's going to, you know, kind of hurt my spirit a little bit here. I know I need to evangelize, but I don't trust that God is going to give me the courage to go further when God's Word has said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us and we will receive and we will be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, I'm convicted that I need to evangelize. Where I am not convicted is in the fact that I am trusting God that He is the one who is going to give me boldness to live out my witness in the world. If I was convicted of that totally, I would never waver from evangelism. But as it is, I waver in evangelism. You see, Paul was an individual. This boldness that he has to go to Jerusalem, knowing what's going to happen, Knowing what's going to happen is boldness is because he is walking by the Spirit, and in his walking by the Spirit, he is not gratifying the desires of the flesh. If we walk by the Spirit in our convictions, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, and we will live out a boldness in whatever God calls for them to do. You see, individuals who evangelize with a boldness, we're like, man, where do they get this courage from? Where do they get this from? You know, how can they just go up to someone and share with them? Well, because they trust what God has said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when you go out and witness, the Spirit is going to give you the courage to be able to do that. It's not your own strength. Rather, it is the strength of the Spirit who will embolden us for witness. And He often does. He always does. When I say, I'm not going to worry about what someone says and I'm just going to walk by the Spirit in this, my witness is so much more effective. Not in the responses maybe, but in that I keep going onward and I keep talking to individuals and I keep putting myself out there to try to get people the message of the gospel. You see, you go back to uh, Paul in Acts chapter 21, verse 6 here, and we just kind of conclude our passage here before we apply it. As Paul is, is, uh, is, is hearing all of these things from the individual believers here, right? He's, he's hearing them say, Paul, don't go. Paul, we want you to stay. Paul, we'll go and do this. Paul, in Acts chapter 21, verse 6, it says, And we said farewell to them. They went on board. We went on board, and they returned home. We must get to the point in our convictions where we're just unwavering. We're not going to not do them. We are going to see them through. And the reason that Paul did it and the reason that all of God's faithful did it not, is not because, well, they're just so great, but rather it is because the God they serve 
is the one who is great. You see, when we become convinced that God is calling us to do something, as we trust in him for the strength to live it out, he will give you the courage to do it. He will. He will give you the courage to do that. The God who guides will also provide. He always does. He's never, ever, ever going to fail those who he calls to lead him in any capacity that he calls them to lead him by. You know, take myself for an example. I'm not a courageous person. Not at all. I'm not a talkative person. And I definitely lack courage when it comes to public speaking. I can remember vividly back in my high school year, senior year of high school, I had to do a senior project. And it was, I had to give a seven to 10 minute presentation as to a movie that I watched. I was to review it and, and give a rundown of it. The moment I got up there, my cotton mouth was so bad, you could hear my lips just smacking because I had nothing in me. I was so nervous. I was terrified being up there in front of my peers. Also, another example of showing my inability to want to be in front of the public and giving speeches is in that in another church I was going to many years ago, I was asked if I would want to be a greeter, to which I said, no way I'm talking to people in public. I'll just, you know, serve behind the scenes here. I'm not going to greet someone. Again, worried that I might say something wrong, worried that something might go wrong in that. One time here in Bible study when I was younger, a pastor asked me if I would like to open in prayer. And what happened immediately? My stomach drops. I start sweating and I said, ain't no way. There's no way I'm praying here during this. But you see, when God called me into the ministry here, and and when I started discerning the call of my life to enter full-time ministry, you can understand that when I was called into the ministry, my first thought was, well, God, uh, I don't like talking in front of people, you know, right? That's uh, That's one of the things I've got to do week in and week out. Week in and week out, and so often I was just, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go into ministry. I'm not going to go into ministry. I'm not going to do this. But you see, God, somehow, some way, God only knows, because God alone deserves the glory, honor, and praise to it. God woke me up to the point where I recognized that as I go into ministry, I'm not going to go about it at my own strength, but rather God is going to be the one who guides me in the ministry in which I am seeking to live out. And as God has been the one who guides me, I am able to live out this ministry with a boldness and to speak with the utmost authority. At least I try to speak with the utmost authority as I deliver God's word, not because this is my word to give, not because I've got some boldness where I've trained myself in public speaking. You ask me to give a public speech somewhere in the public, I'm probably not going to want to do it. But if I can preach God's word, knowing that God has called for me to do that, I trust that God is going to lead me through. And he does. He always does. And I don't say that in order to prop myself up. I say that to encourage you to act. Anybody who knew me before I started preaching would be able to say I was very, very shy. I didn't want to do anything as it related to this, but rather when God called me to his ministry work, God is glorified through my life as I get to proclaim the message of the gospel week in and week out. You see, a believer, as we see here in Acts chapter 21, a believer who is convinced of their convictions is determined to live them out, and they are unswayed by obstacles. They will see them through. And so we must ask ourselves this question. What are your God-given convictions, and are you living by them? What are the God-given convictions that you have, and are you living by them? One, you know what they are. You're determined by them. You know what your convictions are. If you don't have any convictions, if you have to think about it, you don't know what your convictions are. And that's okay. You need to go to the Lord in prayer and to seek out what it is He is calling for you to do in service of the body of Christ when you fellowship, in worship, or in evangelism. What is God leading you to do? What is God convicting you to do? 
Now, on top of this also, I would say that every single one of us are living by some sort of conviction. Every one of us have a conviction. And so as you think about that, pray to the Lord, ask him to show you what that conviction is that you're living out now that you are led by his spirit to do. But still seek the Lord and his word that he would guide you to both have and live by new convictions that he gives you to live by day in and day out, that your life, that your life would be a witness, a witness to the world that you are no longer walking in the kingdom of darkness, but now are in the kingdom of light and you are going to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. As you apply these truths this week, determine, determine what these spirit-filled convictions are and determine if by your ability to live them out if they actually are convictions. You may say, I want to evangelize every single day of the week. But maybe that's just your personal preference and you're like, I want to do this, but, but maybe that's not what God's calling you to do. And so don't just go out and go straightway and just go fast and, and then burn yourself out right away, but rather seek God, earnestly seek him. God, what are you calling for me to do? And as God gives you that ministry, live it out with the utmost diligence, not being swayed from it, but rather, rather just doing it with a wholeheartedness for the same reason that Paul did it. Paul wasn't doing it for his glory. Paul was doing it, as we read in Acts chapter 21, verse 13. We'll see it next week, but we read it here now. Uh, actually, in Acts chapter 21, verse 14, it says, And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. You see, Paul was doing this because this was the Lord's will for his life. It was the Lord's will for his life that he would go to Jerusalem, deliver the money to the saints, and if that was the Lord's will, he was going to do it right. He was going to do it for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is who we live for. That is why we do what we do. That is why we live. We live to glorify our great God. And if God is calling for us to live out something, anything in our Christian witness, we must do that if we wish to give glory and honor and praise to his name. We do it all for the sake of his name, for Jesus alone is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And so may we go to the Spirit now, each one of us, asking the Lord that he would not only give us Spirit-filled convictions, but also that he would give us the boldness to live them out as we trust him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day as we always do. Lord, you're just the one who provides all of our needs. Lord, you continue to give us breath in our lungs to be able to praise you and to worship you here as the body of Christ. Father, we thank you that you are just constantly guiding us to to greater opportunities for worship and for ministry life, Lord. I, 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 know that, um, I know that you are in my own life, and I pray that you are in other individuals' lives here, Lord. Help us to all be uh, encouraging one another in our convictions that we have. May we be reaching out to one another with what we are discerning as to whether or not it is a conviction from you, God, or just something that may be just a personal preference. Lord, may we be able to know this in order that we would do all things for the sake of your name, God, that we would just continue to be a church that, that exists here as a beacon in the city of Hollywood, not to just present a community life that so many other people present, but rather to present a transformed community, a, a community which, is, which has been transformed by your spirit through redemption, through our faith in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, may we continue to magnify the name of the Lord here in all things and in all ways, not being swayed by the persecution of the world, but rather trusting in you totally and fully. Lord. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.